It's one of the joys when you uh, pastor a church to see some of the wonderful victories and the things that God is doing in people's lives. And uh, I want to draw attention to somebody here. Mitch Keyes is with us this morning. And uh, Mitch is one of our missionary interns is getting ready to head over to Australia, to Brisbane, uh, to work with college students, university students there that uh, hopefully with, once the COVID restrictions are removed, uh, that everyone from around that area of the, uh, the oceanic region uh, will be students there. So Mitch is going to have the opportunity to minister to kids from all over the world. So if you have not met Mitch, I encourage you to meet him after the service. Mitch, I'm going to put you on the spot, brother. At the end of the service, go to the back directly and let people wish you well, let them know that you pray, and then you can also share with them how they can participate in your ministry. Uh, it's also good to see the stewards here, the newly minted stewards from last weekend, also with us this morning. And I believe I see the Kabliskas back there in the back, who have been living in Greenville, South Carolina these past four years, and they're back to worship with us again. Brother, welcome home. It's good to have you guys back with us. God is good. We have to remind ourselves of these things all the time in the midst of our circumstances. So let's go to the Lord and pray and ask him to remind us of that now. Lord, we approach your throne wanting to know more about you. Lord, we can look around us and we can allow our circumstances to uh, interpret events for us, interpret what is going on. But Lord, it is only when we look through your lens of the scripture and we see how you are bringing about all things for your glory that, Lord, we know we can take hope even in the darkest of our days. And so, Lord, we see the good things that you are doing. And we want to praise you for that. Lord, we praise you for Jesus Christ who has come into the world to be the propitiation for our sin that has allowed us, Lord, to be able to stand before you. And we know that our hope is secure based on the work that Christ has done. And so this morning, Lord, allow us to rest in that as we consider your son's coming again. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks since we began the Advent season, a little explanation is probably in order here. Christians not only believe that the Son of God took on flesh and entered into his creation as a baby, that, that he did so in order to live a perfect life and place himself on the cross to satisfy the sin debt that we owe God, but we also believe that he rose from the dead and in his due timing he will return to claim his people as his own, to be with him for all of eternity. We believe this because the Bible, God's holy word, teaches us that this is the case. For example, Jesus said explicitly in John chapter 14, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. At his ascension, the angels told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, and while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go to, into heaven. And the apostle Paul taught his church plants that Jesus could return at any moment. An example of this is 1 Thessalonians 5:2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus Christ will return to claim his bride, to judge the nations and to make all things new. So knowing that this is the case, we're examining 
the Old Testament saints that anticipated Jesus' first coming and promises that were made to them concerning the Messiah. They lived in this, this tension between knowing that they needed to live for the present, yet also be aware that their rightful king, the true Messiah, would come into the world. They had to have patience as they waited. And that patience demonstrated their faith in what was to come. Two weeks ago, we looked at how the saints in Hebrews chapter 11 lived within this expectation but never saw it. But we're told that they were looking ahead to a better country, a city in which the Lord God would be their God and they would be his people. And last week we began to see how to build our faith as we wait. We looked at Psalm 27, a prayer of David. And at the time of this prayer, King David was feeling alone and abandoned. He consoled himself by anticipating what King or what Yahweh, his God, would do for him in the future king, in the Christ. At the time of this prayer, David only had the promises from the law and the history of God's people. He did not have the far better assurance yet. What we now have in Jesus, the son of the living God, who has come, who lived a perfect life on our behalf, died on our behalf, rose from the grave as the first fruits on our behalf, our prayers to the Lord can be based upon a full assurance of the shed blood of Jesus interceding on our behalf. We have a confidence that is so much better than what David had. So we're continuing to look at the Old Testament saints here in the way that they lived in faith for the first advent as an example for us as we live by faith for the Lord's second coming. And this morning, I want to take us back to the second most worst year in Israel's history. Now, I say the second worst year because the worst year was somewhere between 27 and 33 AD when they rejected the first coming of our Lord Jesus. But second to that was the year between 587 and 586 BC. It was the year in which they entered into national exile. God had removed his favor from his people to suffer the consequences of their actions. It was a horrendous time. And yet God still had a remnant that was among them, living by faith that the Lord would redeem them through the Messiah. And the central character during this period is the prophet Jeremiah. Whenever I think of my job as being difficult as a pastor, I just look at the prophet Jeremiah, and I'm grateful that I was not called to minister in his time period. In order to make this meaningful, though, to you, I need to give you some historical background to Jeremiah chapter 32. Otherwise, it's not going to make much sense. I'm going to ask, if you will, please turn back to, to Jeremiah 32. This is found on page 660 of your pew Bible. In fact, if we don't do this, if we don't do this historical analysis, we might jump to the conclusion that God is cruel rather than loving and merciful because we need to see how he had been calling his people to repentance prior to this. Then after that, I want us to look into Jeremiah 32, verses 1 through 25, so that we can see a jailed prophet who was called to make a long-term investment, and he had a bewildered prayer about it. And after that, we're going to look at how this serves as an example for us. So in way of headings, that's history, an imprisoned prophet, long-term investment, bewildered prayer, and applications. Now, if you're going to read the entire book of Jeremiah, uh, if you're going to read his prophecies, I would commend you to get a good study guide or commentary to use alongside of it. And the reason uh, is that this is actually a collection of the prophet's oracles, The material is not not actually arranged or necessarily arranged in chronological order, but some of the declarations are made simultaneously. 
Think of multiple press releases on a single event. Sometimes things are stated later in the book addressing issues that would seem out of sync with what follows it. So if you want to know the background of what Jeremiah is talking about, particularly so that you can understand his poetic and metaphoric statements, I'd encourage you to read the history of it in 2 Kings chapter 23 through 25. It's essential to understanding this event. But for time purposes, rather than doing an extensive study on those three chapters, I'm going to give you a synopsis of these events and the state of the nation of Judah up to this point. And this is going to have to be real quick, so hold on to your seat here, all right? Ever since Abraham, God promised his descendants that he would give them a specific land as their inheritance from him. But he would do so for his glory in a way that they would have to acknowledge him as their God. And to prove the point, the Lord allowed those descendants to become enslaved by the Egyptians. And God freed the Jews from their captivity, and he marched them right into the promised land, conquering the hostile people that lived there. He gave his people laws to live by in order to prove their covenant relationship to him. First on the list is that they would honor their creator God, the only one who gave them life, the land that they were living on, and material blessing. Now you would think that'd be a no-brainer, right? Don't bite the hand that feeds you. The second priority of these laws were, were how they were to treat one another to treat each other with respect, not to lie to one another, not to steal, not to take each other's spouses, things that we would say that are right and proper. God told them if they obeyed, they would receive his continued blessing. However, if they disobeyed his commands, then he would remove them from the land, literally evict them. The people recognized this was a great deal, and they agreed to it. And eventually, around the year 1040 B.C., The entire people are united into a single kingdom under King David. But when David's grandson, Rehoboam, comes to power, the nation splits into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom has one bad king after another that just pulls the people away from God to worship false gods and idols and commit massive immorality. Eventually, in 622 B.C., God uses the nation of Assyria, one of the most bloodthirsty people in all of history, to remove the people in the north from their homeland, just as he said he would. Now, the southern kingdom had watched all of this occur. They saw what happened to their northern brothers. They witnessed the consequences of turning away from Yahweh, despite chance after chance to repent. Judah had intermittent kings that affirmed obedience to Yahweh, and then they also had some horrible kings that uh, pointed the people towards immorality and paganism. In fact, it had gotten so bad at times, they had resulted in sacrificing their children to these idols. The nation as a whole was regressing, and God kept sending prophet after prophet to warn them to repent or judgment is coming. And now in Jeremiah chapter 32, we're almost at the point where the judgment is about to occur at the hands of the Babylonians. Now let me give you just a a brief synopsis of the state of the kingdom of Judah in the year 587 B.C. according to Jeremiah. First, they had become an idolatrous nation. In the first two chapters of Jeremiah, God speaks through the prophet and he asks them, did they not see what had happened to the northern kingdom? 
And yet Judah is doing the same. They keep going after foreign gods. And they think it's okay to do so as long as they worship Yahweh among all these other gods. He compares their rampant idolatry to animals in heat that can't control themselves. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after theirs? Look at the way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her mouth they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you say, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. Now listen to how bad it had gone. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. That's what idols are made out of wood and stone, right? For they have turned their back to me, not their face, but in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. And he warns them the Babylonians here are crouching at their gates, but where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. To them, Yahweh had just become a god among many gods. It had gotten to the point where the people no longer cared about God's word. Listen to this, Jeremiah 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. According to chapter 6, verse 19, God's word was not what they wanted to hear, so they despised it. They loved their sin, therefore God's opinion was no longer relevant to them. That still holds to today. Just this past week, a survey was done by ABC News, and it was released, that, and it was reported within that survey that more than ever, Americans are identifying as non-affiliated rather than as Christians. And the first person in the article that they quoted was a young woman who in her mid-teens felt unwelcome in her Baptist congregation with its conservative views on immigration, gender, and sexuality. So she left. And she said, why? This is a quote. I just don't feel like that gelled with my view of what God is and what God can be. Now, I would be the first to caution this young lady that it's not what your church says, but what does God's word say? We don't get to define God based upon our church's opinions or our own opinions, but what does he say about himself and how we are created? Similarly, the people of Judah were doing the same. What they thought of God was more important than what God was telling them about himself in his perfect word. And to make matters worse, the popular priests and the prophets, God's mediators to the people were saying, it's okay to do your own thing. As long as you make your token sacrifices, God loves his people to be like this. Listen to this. This is Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule out their direction. My people love to have it so. 
But what will you do when the end comes? As long as the religion accommodated the people, everyone was happy. Sacrifices and money were flowing into the temple. The prophets were preaching accommodation, and the people got to live the way they wanted. But behind all of this, too, was also some serious political upheaval and intrigue. During the years of Jeremiah's ministry, he served under five different kings. He began under the good king Josiah, and then came his son Jehoahaz, a weak man who reigned for one year and was exploited by the Egyptians. At the Egyptians' insistence, he stepped down from the throne, and his brother Jehoiakim ruled in his place. He ruled for 11 years and he extracted protection money from the citizens to give to the Egyptians in exchange for security. And then the Babylonians came. And all this promised help from the Egyptians in exchange for security never showed up. Basically, the, the Babylonians seized most of Judah's territory. Jehoiakim dies and his young 18-year-old son, Jehoiakim, inherits the throne. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he seizes Jerusalem and he removes Jehoiakim and installs his uncle Zedekiah on the throne as Babylon's uh, puppet king. But King Zedekiah plots against the Babylonians, making side deals with some of the surrounding nations. But all through this process, Jeremiah keeps telling Zedekiah it's not going to work. God is going to punish Judah, and there's no way out of it. It's too late. Justice must be satisfied. And he tells the king this bluntly in the passage that we read in chapter 32. He also says it again in, in chapter 21, verse 9, and later in chapter 38, verses 17 and 18. And just to make matters worse, despite Jeremiah's warning saying that judgment is coming, there is fake news coming from the false prophets, which makes Jeremiah not only look unpatriotic, but also like he's an insurrectionist. Jeremiah chapter 6. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The false prophets were saying, don't listen to Jeremiah. We're God's covenant people. There's no way he's going to punish us for our sin. And their condemnation of Jeremiah is so bad that in chapter 37, verse 13, Jeremiah is accused of deserting to the Babylonians and betraying his people just for telling the truth. He keeps telling them the only way you're going to save your lives is to surrender and submit to God's will. But they mock him. It makes Jeremiah cry out to the Lord in chapter 20, I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as if it were a, a burning fire that's shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. And yet they say, denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, and then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Not only are the people undercutting Jeremiah's message and his reputation, but they're also seeking his life. But despite all this bad news, there's still hope. 
Not a hope that will avert judgment to come, but a hope of one who will come and transform them after the judgment. In chapter 23, Jeremiah speaks of a good shepherd who will come to lead the Lord's people in paths of righteousness, one that will come from David's line. And he will execute perfect justice, save the Lord's people, and allow them to dwell in safety for all time. In chapter 30, he speaks of a coming king that's going to burst all of the bonds of Israel's enemies. And in chapter 31, Jeremiah prophesies that the Lord will make a new covenant with his people, one in which the Spirit of God will write the law upon his people's hearts, enabling them to obey the Lord. So while there is an impending doom coming, there is also a distant hope for the true people of God who will live by faith and endure by trusting in his promises. Now, I know I've spent a large portion of our time recounting the history of the period, and I promise the next section is going to be much quicker. But don't miss the point of all this. The people have blown it. Like the Garden of Eden, God gave them everything they could have wanted, and yet they still deliberately chose to rebel and to sin against him. We all like to think that we are inherently good. We all want to believe that there's something good inside of us apart from God. But there is not. No, no amount of education, no amount of proper health care or psychology, no amount of positive environment can rectify the problem of sin that is within us. And like the people of Judah, we say we want justice, but we really don't want justice for our own actions. But we think if, if we just had one more chance, then we could get it right. And maybe we could if there was some inherent good inside of us. But the Bible teaches us that we have all sinned and we all fall, fall short of the glory of God. We need something or someone to bring us that peace with God that we spoke of earlier in the service. Some people think being told that we're born into sin is a bad thing, but it's not. Like an addict that's finally saying, I am an alcoholic, it's the first step to the road of recovery because such a statement means I need help outside of myself. And this is the environment in which Jeremiah found himself. Immorality, political strife, fake news, everyone ignoring the truth that you're trying to tell them. You still think the Bible is not relevant for today? So let me draw attention to Jeremiah chapter 32. In the first two verses, we learn three important facts. This is verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. First, we learn, we know the dates exactly, that it is the year 587 B.C., the final year of Zedekiah's reign in Jerusalem. Second, the Babylonians are surrounding Jerusalem in that moment. And third, Zedekiah has the prophet Jeremiah locked away in the palace jail. And here's why in verse 3. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain with him until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah is in jail for telling the truth about what's about to occur. 
In the next set of verses, while in prison, God speaks to Jeremiah and reveals his cousin is coming to visit him. And he's going to offer him a special deal. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is an Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord, and he said to me, Buy my field that is an Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Now, you need to get a picture of the audacity of this in your head. Hanamel comes to Jeremiah while he's in prison, and he demands that Jeremiah, as the next of kin, purchase the family property inheritance from him in Anatoth. Hanamel has the right to ask for this based upon the law in Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 34, where if someone in the family is about to lose the land, then they should sell it to the next of kin in order to keep it in the family's possession. Now, we learn from Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, that Jeremiah was actually born in Anatoth. Anatoth is located just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and this was an area that was already occupied by the Babylonians. So this is the equivalent of having your cousin come to you and say, I know you're in jail, but I need you to obey the laws of God right now. And I need you to give me money for the land that is now in the possession of our enemies. What a deal, huh? And what is shocking is that Jeremiah takes it. He recognizes this is what God wants him to do, and he does this, as we learn in chapter 33, verse 4, he does this as people are tearing down their palaces and houses and using the stone to reinforce the walls of Jerusalem. In the next seven verses, we read that Jeremiah gives Hanamel 17 shekels of silver for the land. He calls for the appropriate parties to witness the transaction. And the prophet gets the correct documentation. He has it sealed in clay jars for future use. It's very strange behavior for such circumstances. And this leads us into Jeremiah's prayer. And there's two things to note here in the midst of it. Yahweh's deeds and then also Yahweh's attributes. First, he praises God for his mighty acts, which, which gives him confidence in this moment. He recalls in verse 17 that God created all things. And in verses 20 through 24, he recounts how God supernaturally delivered the Jewish nation from slavery in Egypt and gave them possession of the land that is currently besieged by the Babylonians. All attest to God's sovereignty to do and act as he pleases. Second, Jeremiah takes notice of God's attributes throughout his prayer. He speaks of the Lord's omnipotence. Verse 17, nothing is too hard for you. In verse 18, he speaks of God's unending covenantal love, his hesed that we've been talking about these past few weeks as he couples God's sense of love also with his sense of justice. Verse 18, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. And in verse 19, he can appeal to God's true justice because of the Lord's omniscience. He knows all things. So then he recounts how God brought them this far, delivered them from slavery, marched them into the promised land, took it from the inhabitants, established them as a kingdom, and now they're surrounded. And note from verse 23 through 24, Jeremiah knows this is the Lord's doing. And now he expresses his bewilderment. You do all of this, Lord? And this is what you want me to do? Verse 25, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses. 
though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. What? Why? Why make me do this, Lord? Why make me obey you in this, of all things? Well, we learn the answer to that in the next portion of the chapter. Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And he reveals to Jeremiah what he's going to do. Yes, he will rain down justice on Judah for her disobedience. He will remove them from the land. It is what is deserved in that moment. That is just. But he also do something else. Verse 37. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I'll bring them back to this place and I'll make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And we know that this happens not only simply when the Persian emperor Cyrus allows the Jews to return and rebuild the temple 70 years later, but more importantly, when Jesus comes to take away the iniquity of the elect and give them his righteous standing before God and regenerate their hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit, he becomes the one way that's mentioned there in verse 39. So yes, Jeremiah, I want you to do this. I had you purchase property to show you that I will make it valuable once again. I am teaching you to make an investment in what I'm going to do in the future. So very quickly, let's just take a moment to ponder this in light of our theme for Advent. What is it that we can do now to build our faith as we patiently await our Lord's return? Jeremiah does something extremely important here. By faith, he obeys God's command to invest in a piece of land that at the moment seemed worthless. Not only that, but even in the purchase, he meticulously made sure that the transaction was legal. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize the text, but I can't help but see a paradigm for the church today. We are called not only to look at our present circumstances, but to believe in our future promise. We are called to invest in our future kingdom and to make sure that our investments are conducted in a legitimate way. So let me read just one final passage to you before I draw the parallels to us. This comes from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So, in light of that last clause, for the former things have passed away, examine your lives and see in what have you invested your time, your resources, and your wealth. Are you sharing with your work colleagues football scores or the gospel? 
for the former things are passing away. Are you investing in your stock portfolio or unreached people groups? For the former things are passing away. Did you build that building right over there to show everyone what a happening church we are? Or did you do it so that you could be trained well by attending Sunday school and finding out how to be the best minister of the gospel you could be? For the former things are passing away. Are you training your kids to have great professions and to succeed in this life? Or are you discipling them in the word of God? For the former things are passing away. What are you investing in? Now, let me be the first to confess that all these other things are important, like education for our kids' careers, investing for retirement, building homes, businesses, and churches, because we don't know when the Lord will return. We are to act wisely and circumspectly in the world. But this is why these things must be lived with our ultimate goal in mind, that all of this is temporary. It's not our home. So how do we legitimize what we're doing? Well, we do these life activities under the direction of the Word of God. We worship according to the Word of God. We obey God over man according to His Word. We build our faith as we wait according to the Word. So let us consider the promise that's been fulfilled in Christ in His first advent as we await His second one. You now have perfect access to the Father. You have the deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of you, enabling you to obey the law of God. You have eternal life in the kingdom secured by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In light of that, by faith, what investment is God calling you to make as you await his coming? I am certain that every single believer here has some call to invest in at this moment. Is it to give more to missions? Is it to share the gospel with a classmate? Is it to forgive someone that wounded you deeply? Is it to lead your family in the word of God? Is it to volunteer in a local ministry like the Huntsville Pregnancy Resource Center or or to teach after school at CEF? Or is it to serve in your church? We have such a great need right now, particularly for children's Sunday school teachers for nursery workers. We have other areas. You you can talk to to Eric Lott, who's helping with our landscaping, and uh, Larry Blackwell about the things that need to be done to maintain this building. There are ways you could serve you in here, serve your church body. Invest well. Invest wisely. And like Jeremiah, God will give you the strength to obey, even in the midst of of incredibly difficult circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the reality from your perspective. The problem is, Lord, that we can become just like Jeremiah. Oh no, the enemy is crouching at the gate. What are we gonna do? as if the power was within us to do something about it. But Lord, we should see and recognize that it's all about you. 
that, Lord, we should be grateful that you delay your coming because, Lord, you desire people to be saved. You desire people to be redeemed. You desire to use us as instruments to proclaim the gospel that will save them. And so, Lord, we pray that in the midst of our circumstances, whatever they may be right now, that we would invest wisely in your kingdom. Give us boldness, Lord, to speak truth, to love well, to reach into others' lives, Lord, in a way that they would recognize that they are sinners that need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, allow us to invest in your kingdom that is longstanding, that is eternal, and don't allow us to be enamored with the twinkling things that are just passing away in this earth. But allow us, Lord, to see your glory for what it truly is, that we would give every ounce of energy, every penny that we have, Lord, in order to see your name proclaimed and glorified. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Our hymn of commitment.